Millions of frontline workers keep our economy running and are provided with the latest technology to do their jobs. But digital adoption, especially by frontline workers, is really hard. This is Frontline Innovators. We explore how to overcome challenges and achieve success when we empower our essential workers. I'm Justin Lake. And I'm Gene Signorini. Together, we speak with experts who are leading the way and driving digital transformation to the front line. This podcast is sponsored by Skillful on a mission to help frontline workers learn and use the technology needed to succeed in their jobs. Welcome to the Frontline Innovators Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Lake, and we've got another great guest lined up for today's show. This is a guest that uh, he and I have been back and forth a couple of times trying to get today scheduled and have some funny stories about our scheduling leading up to today. So I'm very excited that we finally are pulling this off once and for all. Our guest today is the Senior Manager of Learning and Development for Take 5 Oil Change. Please welcome to the show, Dave Brazil. Hello, Dave. Hello, Justin. Thank you for having me. Thank you again, and thank you for uh, coming back as many times after the prep call and, and all the attempts to uh, to get booked for today. So we're really looking forward to this conversation. I want to start off the show as we always do and ask what you think is the biggest challenge facing the deskless workforce today. I've been thinking about this question quite a bit. I've had, I don't know, dozens of answers in the uh, few times we've went to kind of connect and where I've where I've kind of come back to a few times um, really is, I'm going to oversimplify this answer, and that is clarity or the lack thereof. And for me, and what that means in this context is I've, my current position, I've got over 4,000 frontline employees that I support on a daily basis. And I think the biggest struggle that we have is just maintaining clarity that because it's deskless frontline remote, uh, whichever kind of adjective fits into your particular world, making sure that everybody's on the same page, moving in the same direction at the same time has been just the biggest challenge. Cause every time you uh, do anything to achieve greater clarity or keep consistency in one place, it rears its ugly head somewhere else. It's almost like the more you clean, the more you find, you know, and that's just been, um, on the one hand, frustrating is all get out, but also so it keeps it exciting, you know, and it keeps it fun. And I like a new challenge every day. So I've gotten myself into probably a really wonderful space of uh, chasing that perfect, consistent clarity. Yeah, consistency is is a word you used a few times as you were kind of backing up your statement about clarity. Consistency came out a few times. And that really makes a lot of sense to me. And it, it makes me realize that as the, the frontline workforce in many large organizations is spread across geographically, across many locations for that company, many times it's many states or even many countries that they exist and, and work within the consistency, you know, trying to have a brand that represents and provides a, a consistent customer experience requires that we have consistent communications internally so that all of our team members who represent that brand to the and, and are the face of the business to the customer have are working from the same playbook. And that's that's definitely easier said than done. Yeah, it's incredibly easier said than done it's always easy to encapsulate and describe and quite often leadership especially at a high level executive level c level um are able to articulate they have clarity of vision and the business has clarity of direction or purpose um but what i've found is especially with remote work becoming more prevalent uh, frontline workers and remote and just the 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 separation of of human beings, especially when it comes to spread geographically, as well as spread just hierarchically within an organization. So where that where I see that I in, in my current position, I'm responsible for everything training related as well as internal company communications. So in some ways, that's a that's a great middle space to be because I'm kind of on both ends of uh, what often is not connected and stays congruent. 
but it also means that I am kind of like doubly blessed, doubly cursed when it comes to certain things. And where I'm going with that is I'll go from one day of a challenge that the lack of clarity comes from missing communication, faulty training content. Uh, we've done a few training uh, program refreshes recently where our, our the, the entirety of our intent with the training update is stop lying. The content is out of date to the point where it doesn't even have to be great. It just needs to be accurate today. And we're moving fast. So that's good enough for now. And we're going to come back. And then the other side of it, sometimes the training content or the vision or even the materials are black and white. They're crystal clear. The clarity is not an issue, but I've got executive to regional to district to local levels of management and the interpretation of this material sometimes varies. So you have the telephone game comes up where the, 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 I, the intent was clear at the top or as we published, and then you realize a few months later or sometimes days or weeks that the, the follow through and the action from those things is not in alignment with what the intent was because slightly different interpretation or whatever varying degrees of, you know, kind of change. And it just kind of makes me laugh because it was something that uh, a coworker told me years ago that, um, you know, he asked the same question three or four times at certain planning sessions, because if you've ever done, done the math, like an airplane taken off from LA going to New York, if it's half a degree off course, half a degree is not that big of a deal, but over a couple hundred miles, you know, he's in the wrong country pretty quickly. So, and, and that's what happens to an organization when you multiply this challenge times hundreds or thousands of people across hundreds or thousands of locations, right? There are a bunch exactly. of things I want to come back to there, um, but I, I'd really like to get a chance to have you share a little bit about your background, how you ended up in the role that you're in today. So walk us through your uh, your professional journey. Sure. Um, so my professional journey, I like to say, started when I was in probably second or third grade. My mom moved us uh, out of a small town in northern Florida to Jersey so that she could go to trade school to be a programmer. And this was early 80s. So she went and became a programmer, which, whether I realized it or not, put a serious trajectory on my own kind of life and upbringing. She was the programmer, so I became the hardware kid because she was all software and I had to put it together and make it work. And that just kind of put me down this path of the first half of my life was really pursuing computers and just, you know, IT and technical. And, and that kind of put me into a space of supporting computers and people and businesses in that vein of just hardware support, which eventually landed me in a small job with a very small company early on in that company's life and was able to ride a very interesting roller coaster over a few years working for the same company, working for the same company multiple times, coming in, coming out, coming back, uh, having the company go from, I think when I first joined, I was one of about 30 some employees at the company. They had just opened their second location. Within a few years, it was 750 employees, 30 locations across the Southeast. Uh, and that had all happened in such a short period of time. The company just ran smack dev into a brick wall of, you know, unable to keep cash flow to keep the business going and had to kind of, you know, reel back. So that was my first incredible rocket ship type experience of coming in low and and working my way just up through the company by being a part of it and having to do a lot more than what I had been officially trained to do because of the opportunity that was, you know, given. But it it ended as quickly as it began, which was the blessing in disguise that sent me back to school and got my degrees and uh, got a bachelor's in technology management, which was a very new program at the time. It specifically focused on like where my headspace was, which is in the right, right after 99.com bubble, you know, 2000 happened, 
industry realized we have a whole lot of old school managers that don't understand technology. And we have a lot of new school tech kids coming out of college that don't understand business and that there was this middle space lacking. And I found myself uh, very much in that middle space as a interpreter, for lack of a better word, being able to understand the technology, understand the hardware, having some programming background. I never had the patience to be a programmer. I had the interest in the creativity, but never the patience to write code. Just couldn't do it. So I could read most code, but I couldn't write it because I just wasn't that good at it. But it tied me to everything I had done with just growing with a small business and learning a lot of the things the hard way, being able to sit down with a CEO or an executive and have a visionary conversation and interpret that with IT consultants or programmers or even engineers and say, yeah, we want it to be this. Let's draw a picture and show you what it looks like, but let me help you understand where that's kind of coming from. And I found myself in that middle space, which, uh, again, with one particular company, uh, I also kind of found my my personal self at that time. Uh, we were doing cable contracting. So as unglorious as that is, we were the cable guy. Show up, knock on your door, run some wire, make your TV work kind of thing. Uh, but the owner of that company gave me some of the greatest, you know, kind of insight into him and his business. But really, I found that it was it lined with me. That was the business was a means to an end. That was just what they did on a daily basis. His purpose with that company at the time was making better people. And that's where I realized that that's kind of what I liked about it. And that was why I kind of kept coming back to work with them to further understand how to take a mundane trade, for example, you know, pulling wire from point A to point B. And I could focus on that, but that was just, that was the business model. That was what generated revenue and created opportunity. Uh, and in that particular space, it was, I could take any young, able-bodied person with basic hand-eye coordination, a little bit of, of tool common sense, and can teach them how to do something in a couple of weeks that they can go anywhere in the country and find work. But because of that rapid escalation and then collapse and then kind of reset a couple of times with the business, we began to recognize that when you grow, which is what a business wants, small business wants to grow as fast as possible, but the pitfalls are very real. So a really good tech doesn't make a supervisor because they're the best tech. Your best supervisor doesn't make a good manager because they're next in line. And just because you can manage a location doesn't mean you have any business doing multi-unit administration anyway. They're just different in many ways. And we found a lot of what I found was me in trying to figure out how to solve those problems, which pushed me into learning and development, the training space, personal development, coaching, all of that. I personally live by, if you're not learning something new every day, you're just not paying attention. And I truly believe as long as I focus my nine to five, Monday through Friday, you know, activities at, if I'm doing something that helps enable other people to be better then I, you know, will find satisfaction and growth in my own life. And there's nothing more exciting than working with somebody and getting them promoted or, or whatever their next thing is. And, uh, it was probably the coolest self-discovery I had as a people manager for the first time, 15, 20 years ago now, finding that difficult employee that nine times out of 10, you'd probably just manage out or fire and cut because it's not a good fit. And pausing to take the time to have a conversation about, are you happy here? It doesn't seem like it because like, it's just not, it's not working. And that, that, that's the obvious thing to both of us. So why not? Is it, is it that we've got, I got a good person in the wrong role. Let's find a better role for you. Do you, we do, if we don't have it. Okay. If it's, if it's the wrong person, then you cut bait. But when you've got good people, that are just in the wrong role. You got to find a place for them to be. And sometimes that meant I helped my employees write a better resume, practice interviewing and go find a new job because that's the better thing for them. Right. right. And chances are that helps us level up as a company or a team because you know, that level of involvement 
keeps good people and good people find you when you're good like that. Right. So a roundabout way of saying my career has been trying all kinds of alternative weird ways through odd businesses of just trying to find a way to be better by helping other people be better. I love it. I love when you talked about that middle ground um, between the technology side of thing and, and the business and, and people sides of things that I relate to that a lot. I, I have never described myself necessarily that way, but I, I found a lot of um, in common with the way you were describing yourself, with the way I feel that my role is as well. And uh, uh, including the lack of attention span for coding. Uh at one time in my life, I thought that's where I was going to head, and uh, mm -hmm. clearly that hasn't panned out. And I think maybe some of the reasons might be similar. But I, uh, I really appreciate you talking about the challenge of people moving up into supervisor roles. This has come up a lot lately on the show, and it's it's kind of a double uh, point. Is that the first is that we've seen a lot of, or we've had a lot of conversation on the show about the importance of that frontline leadership role, often called a supervisor or manager. They are the team members to whom the frontline workers themselves report. We've talked about the importance of that role in communication and the interpretation of the corporate communications coming down and the importance that they be delivering that information and instruction and mentorship consistently across the business. The kind of double whammy of that is that they're also, by definition, the people with the least leadership experience. So we've put them into this incredibly critical role. In your organization today, you have thousands of people that are on the front lines, led by hundreds of people that fit this profile that we're talking about. And yet, by definition, they have the least leadership experience. And that's a difficult situation because we're putting a lot on their shoulders. We have great expectations of them. We simply can't run the business without them. And yet they don't have a ton of experience in doing that role. And, and it actually goes back all the way to something that you said at the top of the conversation, which is about the clarity and the consistency of communication. And later when you were kind of talking about the interpretation, even when the information that's delivered from corporate would be deemed to be clear to offer clarity it's black and white the interpretation of that material is not consistent and i'd love to connect that back then to circumstances where maybe those supervisors are getting information that we think is black and white and yet somehow the men and women on the front lines are hearing different versions of that story you know how do you think that happens and maybe more importantly what do we do to solve for that yeah so a lot of a lot of truth to that the the interesting challenge of it's your frontline supervisors and those early people leaders basically they're typically not a manager but they're often responsible for people and it seems like traditionally that's good enough from a training support expectation because if it is 10, 15, even a hundred people in a room or in a factory, in an office, that can be good enough because the safety net of, you know, Bob is still around the corner that it worked. I don't really think is true anymore as companies have gotten bigger, as technology's gotten faster. Um, as the world is flattened and just things have changed, you know, it, it is, it's different now. Um, I think that you're, 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 you're very true, very that you're very accurate in that there's a high expectation. And I would say most of the time it's unrealistic. It's an unrealistic expectation unless you have gone out of your way early on and had intention in how you were preparing that person to take that role. And this is where most companies fail. I I am in. I know that I am not sufficient in that space with what we're doing today. Uh, a few anecdotal points to that. So, in a, in a previous life at a previous company, one of the things that we did with training new hires and new people in the company was we incentivized the 
not so much the trainer because the trainer was like two weeks and then boom, you're out, but you would mentor up and partner with like an experienced technician that would help you through your first three, six, you know, kind of months. We incentivized that mentor with there's a baseline expectation for the new person with the progressive, you know, growth over 30, 60, 90 into six months. And the better that the new person performed above the expectation equaled bonus dollars to that mentor. So the mentor was financially motivated to make sure this new person gets good, gets better, you know, repeatedly. And that worked well in a hands-on technical environment because it was the best practices were kind of black and white and your, your comfort and experience came from just doing the work and, and reps. So that worked out well. Uh, another thing is the soft skills side of it though, like in my current role, and I think more to kind of where you were speaking of that leadership, that leadership of people function, that's not something you just pick up or, you know, learn from doing so much as you've got to be coached. You have to be mentored. You have to be prepared ahead of time to be able to make the right kinds of decisions and communication. Um, and it's something that I challenge my team and my people whenever we're talking about stuff like this, whatever the new idea is, is it setting up us up to succeed or is it setting them up to fail? And a lot of times we have very clear communication or expectations or some new initiative that in and of itself is very straightforward. It improves the bottom line. It increases sales. It helps this. It helps that. But holistically, if that's not pushing us closer to the overall goal, it's setting us up to fail. Or if the, if the expectation is just out of alignment with what the realistic possibilities are, you're setting yourself up to fail. And it's as simple as I'm going to promote my best technicians because they hit certain KPIs to be a supervisor. Now, as a supervisor, you get to be responsible for certain things and directing people to a certain level. And that's it. That's the entire gatekeeper. Well, we're setting up those other employees to fail because we just put we just gave someone authority and responsibility without any of the skills to actually wield it properly. And that becomes dangerous because now it's very costly because one incorrect, inappropriate, or too early of a promotion can be hugely detrimental to your workforce and your just your general culture of, of the, the business and the company. And not to go too sideways, but like I constantly have to remind myself that culture is not what I want it to be. It's the sum of the people that exist in the organization today, whether I like it or not. And that's a very big deal because when you battlefield promote, you promote too quickly, you don't support the people that you promote. You don't set them up properly before you promote them. You don't support them after you do. And you put in this inconsistency and interpretation of messages and you end up with lack of clarity. This is a recipe for uh, the worst culture possible, even though everything you're saying from the top and everything you're doing from the top is in line. Your reality at the front line is not the same thing. That's a great way to put it, by the way, is that the reality on the front lines is really what matters. So it doesn't matter if the CEO might have perfect crystal clear clarity about the vision of the company and what he or she expects to deliver to your customers. Yeah. But the men and women on the front lines of your business aren't in alignment with that or don't understand it or aren't executing with that same clarity, then none of it matters. Yeah. So one of the like more localized uh, specific current challenges for me right now is our we do, I do not have a direct platform to speak directly to my frontline workers. I am able to communicate to managers and middle management, but I'm very much reliant on individual managers sharing the message to the everyday folks, you know, and whereas often this is handled through like the five minute stand up, you know, pre-shift meeting type thing, uh, we operate very lean. There's maybe a handful of employees 
at a time. Not everybody starts at the same time. So like the idea of having like a single simple pre-shift meeting where everybody's together uh, doesn't happen every day and it's difficult to happen consistently. So it really has to be over-communicated. And this is where one of the skills I've tried to bring into this role is that idea that you have to over-communicate absolutely everything until they start making fun of your delivery. You're just not getting through to them. And uh, as well as like never not communicate the bad stuff, like never leave a void, uh, a void of communication, a lack of positive communication will always be filled with negativity and, you know, gossip and rumor. And it's, it's incredibly difficult to overcome those things from a communication standpoint that leads to a shift in the culture and the, and the frontline understanding and, and just the general feeling from the front lines, which is so easy to start and so difficult to kind of like back up and overcome. So it goes back to over-communicate, always over-communicate, just constantly over-communicate, especially the good stuff, but acknowledging the difficult things as well, because sometimes a business doesn't have the answer to the crisis at hand right this second, but acknowledging that the crisis exists and that we're working on it sometimes is the best thing you can possibly do. Because yeah. when you say nothing, you look like you either don't know or you don't care or worse. And I don't know, you know, what is worse than that, but you know, it happens. So being able to over communicate with everyone consistently is kind of the first step. And then the, the follow-up is just like with training, I can put together the best training package in the world. It can be the world's, it can be world-class phenomenal content. Everyone will possibly learn from it. And if you put it out there and that's where you stop, you've really only gotten half the lesson done here because how do we know that the learner learned? How do we know that even if they did learn the lesson, are they doing it? Is there any, is there any follow through? And a lot of the times with trainings, it's really difficult for us because we're doing trainings that don't directly impact the bottom line. It might be indirect six degrees sideways. So you have to interpret three, six months later, a year later, did we influence properly or not? And that's one of the things that I'm kind of focused on now is how to close that gap. Every training has to have an opportunity for feedback. Every employee engagement we have. So like we do quarterly surveys around the standard dozen Gallup questions and things. And we need to take those comments, take that feedback and immediately regurgitate it right back to the audience. Hey, you said, we heard, we're listening. And here's the three things we're taking action on. You know, like if you don't have that, you can't have a conversation with 4,000 frontline employees. So you do your best. And at, at minimum, you've got to be able to close the loop and come full circle and let them know that we, you know, you hear them, you see them because when you don't, they turn very quickly. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that actually for a second. You said you can't communicate with 4,000 employees directly. And you also had mentioned earlier about not having a, a platform um, to communicate directly with them, but being able to communicate to mid-level and uh, frontline leadership. And I wonder what role, you know, kind of bringing this around to, to technology, you know, that's where I spend a lot of my time is thinking about where technology plays a role in filling some of the gaps that we're talking about today. And I'm curious, if you had a platform that just was able to send messages out to all of those folks or to allow the supervisors to communicate better, does that solve the problem in and of itself or are there still gaps there? It solves, I'd say 80% of the problem because it creates the channel. Um, it doesn't solve the aspect of interpretation yeah. So even though you're broadcasting the message, it doesn't mean it's it's um, clearly understood. Yeah. So the conversational aspect of it is the important thing. And yes, I don't have the platform enabled. We're about ready to launch something that's going to let me speak directly to the 4,000 employees. 
um, being able to communicate to is not the same thing as having a conversation with. Yes. And there's a huge distinction between a person and the intellect and two-way communication with, you know, one to a few people and a large mass of people. Mm-hmm. And um, one of my favorite movie quotes of all time is the original Men in Black. There's the scene where Will Smith's on the bench. He's just kind of coming to grips with, oh, my God, there's aliens in this world. I don't know what I'm going to do. And uh, I think it's Agent K. I forget the other guy, the character's name now, but he has this thing about like, why haven't we told people, you know, like, why does it have to be a secret? And the line was, well, person is smart, but people are stupid. <laughs> Collectively, it's just not the same thing. Yeah. And it's funny. And you're like, yeah, that's true. Like, I can't just go to the masses and say something and everyone's going to understand. It's not quite that simple. Uh, and that's, it's very true in like our line of work in that I can broadcast a message, but it really only lands as well as, you know, if I'm lucky 60, 40, like I've really got to make sure that we go after the, how do we cover the bases um, with trainings the same way? There's multiple learning styles. There's different people, different backgrounds, everything else. Uh, so the platform to be able to communicate out opens the channel. It, it, it's a it's a big step forward to the solve. It's not a complete solve because being able to cultivate a comfort level with the audience, which is the X factor here, for them to be able to say, I don't know what you mean. I don't understand. Or even better yet, I don't agree with that. Right. And to be able to have that level of comfort to have challenge is really important and it's a primary goal of what i'm doing with like our employee feedback surveys is not to make you feel better or to solve every possible complaint problem you know or whine that's out there but establish a level of comfort that you're willing to speak up if you don't speak up and express a concern it will never be resolved let alone you know right. to your satisfaction and without that level of um, confidence in the company from the front line, uh, you're just shooting in the dark. You know, you're taking swings and you hope you hit something at some point. Yeah. Um, but it it also, it opens up additional challenges of as soon as you cre- open the platform where everybody has a voice, you need to be ready to deal with everybody's voice. And uh, that's that's kind of the scary thing. So Uh, (laughs) yeah exactly so strategically we're going to like we're launching this this program uh primarily on a social kind of engagement level we do quarterly contests and different things and the platform is strictly there to promote and share cool fun stuff related to this activity that allows us to like slowly dip our toes into the water of it's very voluntary, it's only social, it's not, it's never going to be a required thing. Uh, we just hope for high adoption. And at the same time, I will be pushing very hard at the high level of starting with regional leadership around, here's what you can do, here's how you kind of manage, monitor, moderate to the extent that we want to moderate, uh, which for us is going to be, as long as what you're saying and doing fits the company brand, and isn't explicit or isn't derogatory, then have at it because the whole point of community is community will self-police. So we want to rely on that, but we're rolling the dice that it, you know, it, it will always have to be moderated. And driving from the leadership, which is a much smaller group of people, these are the advantages to this, being able to share these types of communications, being able to do this type of interaction. And you get buy-in there they will drive the high end and making it fun for the masses will get interest and eyes and engagement. And I'm hoping that this brings us closer to the middle where we have a place now that is comfortable, it's safe, it's open, and it's constructive. So for me, it it has to be constructive. I will listen to anybody's complaint if it's constructive. Mm-hmm. Um, 
one of my favorite books is the no complaining rule. And I can't think of the author off the top of my head, but if, if you haven't seen that or checked that book out, it takes probably an hour and a half to read this book. It's not a big one, but it boils down to no whining. You know, like if you're going to come with a complaint, come with a complaint, be concise and come with at least one or two solutions. And sometimes you don't have a solution, but if you've tried to come up with one and it's like, here's a problem, I see a problem, I have no idea how to solve it, that's still better than that sucks. And the idea of, no, we're not going to accept whining. We're not, complaints are not allowed, but constructive criticism and feedback with suggestions and ideas, always welcome. Yeah. You know, coming back to the, the communication platform, we've been having some conversations in my day job at Skillful and we've made an observation that I want to share with you and, and with our audience. I, it's really super simple, but it's, I, I think it's insightful. So we have the ability for supervisors to communicate with the frontline workers through our platform. And what we found is there are varying degrees of engagement with those communications. So we peeled this back a little bit to see if we could figure some things out. And one of the things that we noticed is that the supervisors that were using names of the recipient in the communication were getting significantly greater engagement with those messages. I don't remember the statistics. So if anybody's interested, follow up with me and I'll try and go pull up that data. But it was- I imagine it's significant. Yeah, it was really interesting. So what was happening was some supervisors were sending out messages saying, hey, you need to do this thing by this date, right? And unsurprisingly, at least in hindsight, you know, you look at that and you say, yeah, I probably wouldn't engage that message either. But another supervisor would be sending out a message that said, hey, Dave, hey, Justin, hey, Mary, we need to do this thing. Don't forget it needs to get done by Friday. And the ones that use the first name got significantly better engagement. And it, it, what it, for me, what that made me think about is, so we acknowledge the importance of the role of these frontline team leaders and supervisors. We can acknowledge kind of universally that they're the least experienced leaders in the business. And what role do we all have and me as a technology guy building a platform to support these scenarios, what role do we have as a technology company to that, that should play into helping to support their supervisors? How can we educate them to be better at communication? Because really you made the point that I was kind of asking about, which is, hey, it's not enough to just have a platform. The humans, at the end of the day, we're facilitating communication from humans to other humans, between humans, right? And not everyone is great at that. And so if we know that not everybody's great at that, then it's not enough to just have the platform. We also have to provide a mechanism for people to get better at actually communicating. Yeah, a um, couple of comments. So before I forget, uh, this is a wonderful place to remind myself of, you know, conversational skills are, acquired they're not natural uh, despite having two ears and one mouth people want to talk more than they listen all the time and are you listening to me or are you busy thinking about what you're going to say in return i forget who said that but i, I that one kind of made me laugh when i was probably in middle school i was like one of those things i kept in my notebook um so the personalized messages were got a greater response that doesn't surprise me at all uh just from a from a management experience, if it's not personalized, then the receiver honestly doesn't care. The people that would have done it anyway would have, are going to do it whether you tell them to or not. Yes. And when the when the message is generic, the people that don't do it tend to have that natural default of, well, you're not talking to me. Right. And you so you tone out. And the default inclination of oh well you're not talking to me um is too prevalent in, in that particular space so personalized doesn't surprise me at all that you you know have data to support that um it's it's similar to what i found and try to hold true to when it comes to anything that is negative information or especially um 
discipline, accountability, which by the way, something that I've learned and been preaching a lot lately is some of the difficulty I've had at that middle management space is I, I just realized that a lot of my supervisors and frontline managers don't understand the difference between accountability and discipline. Because I started asking some managers, why aren't you holding these people accountable to the rules or the process or, the, or whatever it is? And they say, oh, I do. When they don't do it, I write them up. That's not accountability. That's discipline. And there's a, there's a very distinct difference between those two things. And I realized, okay, we're not teaching people how to hold someone accountable, which is like a whole nother podcast probably. But uh that is when it comes to these kinds of communications, I I always hesitate and drag feet when leadership says, hey, this is the message we got to get out. Okay, does everybody need to hear this or just the people that aren't doing it? Because if you start communicating the reminders or the don't forgets or the please do type messages, the the percentage of your audience that is good and disciplined and we're going to do it anyway you're coaching them to tune you out because yeah. you're sending communications that are irrelevant to them. They don't need that message or that reminder. Um, sometimes reminders have to happen, but when it's a, Hey guys, we asked for this to be done yesterday. It wasn't done. So let's make sure we get it done today type stuff. Don't send that to the people who got it done on time. You know, that needs to be more targeted. So similar, you know, kind of related point of, of the communication, certainly the audience has to be right. That's, that's a whole level of thing. Um, personalized makes tons of sense uh, because, you know, you want to feel warm and special, you know, right. like, oh, look, you're talking to me. Uh, you use my name. I pay attention. Of course, people like to see their name. People like to hear themselves kind of thing. Um, and the the note I made is um, you're, it's the human to human kind of interaction and the, the the connection that, especially if you're virtual or remote through an app, uh, is more difficult to achieve. And like, how do we make that better? Um, I, I wonder if the answer is AI, interestingly, because if you had, if you had the ability, and I, I, I try to do this with email, you ever heard that really good answer or like um, uh, advice, especially when you're upset or it's a delicate matter, you write the message and walk away, right? right. Like you never send, you, you come back and you read it and you go, even five minutes later, you're like, oh yeah, yeah, we're not saying that now, you know, you, you, you adjust, right? You, you, the cooling off period, the perspective, whatever it is. I actually have delay on my outbox <laughs> for so that reason. My emails yeah, get sent I, for like 10 seconds or something. I, I'm, I'm a huge, huge proponent of keyboard shortcuts. I did this little time study way back when about like the top 10 windows keyboard shortcuts. If you, if you became an expert at the cut, copy, paste, open, close, new, you know, the top 10 kind of things, it saved the average office worker, like 45 minutes a day of mouse seek yeah. time, you know, which isn't a whole lot, but it adds up over time. Yeah, and, anyway, um, on a platform like this, if there was the, you know, I'm doing an announcement. It's about this, whatever you push your button. If the immediate response was AI comes back and says, are you trying to be positive? Are you trying to be, you know, like what's the tone of your message? And have you thought about this? Like that immediate, like editorial AI, you know, uh, just smart feedback. You know what? You're right. Maybe I'm using some of the wrong words. Maybe it comes across with a weird connotation or whatever, you know, that kind of pause is all it takes. And even the, the, the delay alone is probably good. I would, now that I'm saying it out loud, the platform that I'm talking about forcing a delay would almost be ideal because you don't want a reaction. You need to have a, everything should have a response. Right. And the, the pause, take a beat, think is, and, and, and I love response versus react as a word because react is just acting and response is short for responsibility. One of those two things you own. 
and the other you're stuck with. So taking responsibility in your communication is a huge step, especially for frontline, first-time supervisors, early people managers, being able to understand and appreciate like, hey, great responsibility, great power, right? Like Spider-Man went wrong. So pause, think before you respond, never react, always respond. Um, and being able to take technology and finding a way to uh, stop humans from being humans to the extent of take a second and don't be dumb today. Right. right. Like uh, I, I used to work with a guy, he was a regional manager. He oversaw 60 field employees. They were just kind of, you know, remote scatter techs. Um, he had shirts and mugs made called don't dumb today. And every month he would recognize the employee who consciously avoided stepping in it, right? So like, here's your don't dumb today, you know, reward. And it was funny, but it was like, it's wrong. You really shouldn't do it that way. But like, I get, I get where he's coming from, right? Like, <laughs> because all too often he was finding people just weren't taking the time to think, you know? And it was like, and for him, it came from, in his position, he was the first line of, of response. He was the first line of defense. Hey, man, I got a question about this project. Did you did you read the directives document? Yeah. Look at it again. The question you're asking is paragraph two. Like, right. go look. And that was, it became like 80% of his conversations were, stop being dumb, go read the document. You know, because yeah. people just weren't. And- we, we weren't conscious enough. Like it was, oh, that's funny because we could all relate to it. We're all in the same position. Not a single one of us went, well, obviously directives document isn't good enough because if we're getting all these questions that come out of the document, it can't possibly be a good document, can it? That, that's where my head went. It actually goes back to how you started the conversation and we're, we're already up at the end of our time. So I, I do need to wrap it up, but I, I want to kind of come full circle back around just on, on what you've said, you started with the challenge being that clarity, mm -hmm. which tied to consistency and the communication. And when you talk about people that are on the receiving end of materials and we, those who created those materials or systems or technology or whatever the case may be, we get frustrated because they're not being used or engaged with the way that we expected we have a responsibility. We have to be accountable to that, to say it's our job to make sure that the things that we produced, whatever those things are, whether they're systems or content or a video, whatever the format may be, that it is as absorbable as possible. I think I may be making up a, a, way, a word there, but um, you know, we need to, it, it's on us. We mm -hmm. can't put everything back on them. So this is like, it has come up a few times on this call human interactions are two-way. We both have a responsibility. So the senders have a responsibility, the receivers have a responsibility. And it's not just about pointing the finger at the men and women on the front lines and say, you have to do better. Yes, that may be part of it, but we also have to look at the tools and the methods, the strategies that we're using to train and, and communicate with those men and women on the front lines. Otherwise we're, we're doing them and ultimately ourselves a disservice, right? So I, I always Absolutely. feel like we can focus on how we can ensure their success Ultimately, sure, it has some selfish benefits. We could all be successful too. But if we kind of flip it around and say, how can we make sure that those men and women who I think many times are underserved, how can we do a better job of serving them to ensure their success? And then all that will flow back to the rest of us at, at corporate or in, you know, in our other jobs. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, with, with the communications part, something my mama taught me a long time ago, um, you are the only person that can be responsible for making sure other people understand what you mean. Yes. So when it comes to the sender receiver relationship, the receiver's only responsibility is to be open. And sometimes they're not, and it doesn't matter what you say or do or how, if they're not open to it, they're not going to receive. Uh, but as long as they're open to receiving a message or communication, then they, and they are open to 
challenging questions, whatever, then you will be able to get the message through. And as senders of communications, of training, of, of all of these things, uh, we cannot send and leave. Like you can't just fire it off and be done. It is not that way. We have to chase and it's frustrating and it's aggravating, but everything that I create and publish and communicate, I have to chase it. And sometimes I do that actively and directly with, you know, did you get it? What kind of questions do you have? Are you sure? And then again, you know, later following up and sometimes it's outsourced through, okay, you know, we're pushing this content out and district managers are going to follow up and do audits. And one of the questions is something that validates, you know, there was an, there was a call to action. Did action happen? Yes or no. And I'm relying on them collecting that information. But if I don't ask them to, I'm never going to know. So those, those, that's just, you know, greatly, greatly important. Yeah. Never, never got to wrap it up. I can't, but I knew this was going to go fast. Uh, I've appreciated every conversation that we've had. So thank you so very much no for uh, getting this scheduled and, and for coming back on the show. And uh, I think we probably need to have uh, another call at some point. So we're going to welcome you into the Frontline Innovators community. Uh, after today, you'll get an invitation to uh, come participate with us with the Frontline Innovators Council. And I uh, can't wait to uh, visiting with you over there. So to our appreciate audience. It. We're going to wrap it up there. I hope you found the conversation as enjoyable as I have. Uh, thank you to our listeners for your continued engagement with the podcast. We really appreciate all the support that we've had from you and uh, look forward to uh, more ideas and uh, more recommendations for guests to have on the show. As a friendly reminder, this podcast is sponsored by Skillful, the only end-to-end -end systems training platform that's optimized for frontline operations. You can learn more about how you can solve your frontline systems training challenges by visiting skillful.com. That's S-K-Y-L-L-F-U-L.com. Thank you again. And Dave, thank you for joining the show today. Thank you.